This morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 20, near the end of the chapter from verses 27 to 44. This is yet another one of the passages where there is confrontation with our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for the brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing Upon it. Let's pray together. (coughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would meet with us in your word, that you would remind us of your blessings to us, that you would point us to the Savior. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. It is a curious aspect of our modern age. 
There are so many things that we are reminded continually about that we cannot be sure. That there are no absolutes. That our structures, our beliefs must change with the times. There are constant calls to be on the right side of history. Whatever that is supposed to mean. But the interesting thing for me about this is that those who often call the loudest for a lack of absolutes and a lack of certainty are so absolutely certain that they are right all of the time. They're right about their opinions, about God, about the Scriptures. And they will not listen to others. If it seems like this is beyond frustrating to you, then take good hope from our Lord Jesus Christ and the way He interacts with those who deliberately try to upset His ministry and the cause of truth. And we see here this morning Jesus in a confrontation with the Sadducees. And we see that when you boil it all down, What's happening here is that the Sadducees are still missing the point. No matter how many times Jesus explains it, no matter how many examples He gives, no matter how clear He is, they continue to still miss the point. And to miss the point about critical matters. We see it in three things in the passage this morning. We see first that they miss the point about the resurrection. We see second, that they miss the point about God. And then third, that they miss the point about the Christ. The resurrection, God, and Christ. Each one of these things in turn, Jesus will navigate for us and point us in the right direction. Let's begin then by looking at the resurrection. Here we see at verse 27 that the Sadducees come up to speak to Jesus. Now, you have to, in your mind's eye, picture what is going on. There has been a great deal of resistance to Jesus. There have been attacks that are subtle and not so subtle. And it is perhaps only moments ago that the Pharisees have tried their foolproof plan to trip him up. It was designed to get him hauled off to the governor's office and thrown into jail. The whole business about taxation. The Pharisees have been dogging Jesus chapter after chapter, month after month, year after year of his ministry. But they failed yet again. Now, picture in your minds then this second group, the Sadducees. Now, we've seen before that they have banded together with the Pharisees for the express provision of attacking Jesus. But if you take Jesus out of the equation, they can't stand each other. So imagine the Sadducees looking, almost snickering, at the latest failure of the Pharisees. And saying something like, get out of the way. Let us show you how it's done. We know how to ask Jesus a question he'll never be able to answer. As a matter of fact, 
We've been using this question on you Pharisees for years, and you still can't answer it. Let us take care of this. And so we have here crystallized an important confrontation. It's important, and we know it is, because this is the only incident that Luke specifically records of confrontation between Jesus and the Sadducees. We also know that it's important because all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record it. Luke breaks right in in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees. Now, who are the Sadducees? We've spoken a bit about them before, but let me refresh your memory. They were an established group in Israel. They were a class unto themselves. It was thought that they were descended from Zadok, the priest. And they were the priests in the temple, and they served in the public corporate worship. Somehow, some way, the language of Zadok made its way to Sadducee. I'm not exactly sure how, but you can at least see some of the similar sounds. And after the Babylonian captivity, they served as priests and were in charge of the temple worship. As a matter of fact, it was a matter of tradition that the chief priest was a Sadducee. They sat in the governing council, the Sanhedrin, together with the Pharisees and others. But you see, what made the Sadducees different is they were the ones with power and authority. The Pharisees wish they had the power the Sadducees had. See, we tend to think of the Pharisees as the movers and the shakers because they're constantly hounding Jesus. But that was not the case in first century Palestine. It was the Sadducees who were pretty much in charge of everything. The temple, the government. They were wealthy members of the upper class. They were a tight group, a small circle. But they were also very mean-spirited. They didn't like to be around other people beneath them. The Sadducees were the sort of person that if you saw them talking in a group at a gathering or a party and you walked over to join the conversation, they would all as a group walk away from you. Because you're not worthy of their time. They were the upper class. The literati. They were the ones who cooperated with the Roman government. They were the ones with power and authority. And what they were philosophically and theologically were materialists. They believed in the here and the now. And if you couldn't touch it, see it, smell it, it didn't exist. They weren't big on angels or demons. And as we'll see in a minute, on the afterlife in general. Now, I know this is difficult for us to think about because when I describe this kind of materialism, our thoughts drift to secular humanists, to those who deny God, who would never be found in a church, who wouldn't lead a worship service, and that's what the Sadducees do. But it's interesting, that's who they are. They're the ones in charge of church, and they don't believe in eternity. They're the ones who lead worship, and yet they think that God did not write the Bible. 
They're a very interesting lot. The best way for you to picture them in your mind's eye is if they were our modern day intellectuals. You know, the kind of snooty academics that look down at you. And when you ask a question or raise an issue, they act as if you've just fallen off a pumpkin truck. They're the kind of power brokers that you see as talking heads on news stations who tell you what you should think, why you should think it, and who you should vote for. That's the Sadducees. They want to be in charge. And they come up to Jesus, and Luke tells us right out of the gate what they're about, that they miss the point entirely about the resurrection. Look with me at verse 27. The Sadducees are described as those who deny that there is a resurrection. Note it's categorical. It's not that they doubt there would be a resurrection. It's not that they're unsure. No, their starting point is they are absolutely certain that this idea of a resurrection is all full of hot air. You see, this goes along with their way of thinking. They've rejected the tradition of their fathers in the faith. They reject most of the Bible. As a matter of fact, the only part of the Bible that they were willing at all to listen to were the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And although they had certain aspects about them, an affinity with Rome, What really defined them was the doctrine that there was no resurrection. This is very clear. And they would often fight with the Pharisees. As a matter of fact, if you put a Sadducee and a Pharisee together and they didn't have Jesus to attack, they would immediately go after each other. We see this in the Bible. You may remember that Paul, when he was dragged before the Sanhedrin in Acts 23, Paul, who is no dummy, When they asked him why he was there, he saw Pharisees and he saw Sadducees and he said, I'm being dragged here because I believe in the resurrection. And 15 seconds later, a fight broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Paul just kind of stepped to the side, watched it happen. This was what they were vehement about. It's who they were. Because you see, they lived for today. They didn't want to think about tomorrow. Now you might ask yourself, Why would the Sadducees believe this? It would be an important question to ask yourself because you have friends and neighbors that don't believe there's a resurrection. You have school teachers that don't believe in eternity. You have co-workers who think you're full of hot air when you talk about the resurrection. So understanding why the Sadducees think this way will help us to understand why others in our day think this way. You see, the first and foremost reason I think that the Sadducees rejected the resurrection is because in Israel, they were the ones who had all the comfort of life. They were wealthy. They held the levers of power. They were the ones that were in charge. A Sadducee never went to bed hungry. He never worried about if he'd have a roof over his head. He might have worried if there was enough gold or marble in the house. But you see, they had all of the comforts you could possibly get from this world. Isn't that so true of so many of us today? 
When was the last time you worried about drinking clean water? Or freezing to death? Or boiling over of heat stroke? Yes, I know you might not want to drop the air conditioning a few degrees and pay the extra money on the bill. But you can, can't you? Think about all of the blessings we have in America today. We drive the best and safest and fastest cars. We have information at our fingertips at our phones. We have homes that are palaces. We have blessings beyond anything we could think. And the more that our society is blessed in the here and the now, the more important that becomes to us. And the less important later on is. A second thing about the Sadducees was, is that they were all about avoiding responsibility. Because you see, if there's no resurrection, there's no eternity. If there's no eternity, there's no judgment. If there's no judgment, then anything goes. Right? That describes our society today too, doesn't it? If there are no consequences to my actions, then I will do whatever feels right to me. Whatever I think I should be involved in. What my desires are. You see, the Sadducees were mistaken. They missed the point about the truth of the resurrection and what it means in our lives. But they were also mistaken, Luke tells us, about the nature of the resurrection. And so they come up to Jesus and ask him a question. They come to Jesus with a riddle. Now, this is a practiced riddle. This was one that they used on their opponents, the Pharisees, when they had resurrection debates. And you can imagine the glee that they have inside getting ready to ask Jesus this. If you're not sure what that would look like, imagine in your mind's eye when one of your children here's a riddle for the first time that they think is the best thing on the face of the earth. And they sit down at the dinner table and they ask you, I've got a riddle for you. You'll never get it. Right? And you can just see them grinning from ear to ear. They're, they're so sure you'll never have any idea what the answer is. That's what the Sadducees have in their mind. And so what they do is they say to Jesus, now Moses has commanded us that if a husband dies... His brother needs to marry his former wife to raise up children for him. This is a principle in the Old Testament called leveret marriage. Now, this is not to be confused with the Levites, who are a type of people. This is just a name, leveret marriage. I know what it sounds alike. And what leveret marriage was designed to do was because in the days of Israel, virtually all wealth was tied up in land and property. And you inherited your property from your father. But what was a father to do if he died and he wasn't a father? If he didn't have a son to pass on his land, his name, his legacy to? Well, the Old Testament had a provision for this. That the man's, the deceased man's brother was to marry his wife. And the first son would be legally counted as his son. His name would go on. His property would be passed to this son. And then the second and all following children would be legally accounted to the brother. To the second one who had married. 
And this was the way that a name, a legacy, and property would be passed on. And you see, what the Sadducees have latched on to is that they can use this to show the absurdity of eternal life. And the thing is, there's, within their question, there is an assumption about what the answer already is. You see, they ask the question in such a way to make Jesus come around to the answer they want. It's not a sincere question. This is also instructive for us as we discuss the faith with others. Because, you see, people always begin with a presupposition. No one has an open mind. People are colored by where they were raised and what they've read and who they've talked to. They come to every single issue with presuppositions. Maybe some are stronger than others, but they have presuppositions. And you see, the interesting thing here is, they think they've got Jesus because they've built a box, and they tell Jesus to go stand in the box and answer the question. And do you know what Jesus does? He says, I'm not going to stand in the box. That's not even a real box. You don't understand the nature of reality. Now, this is important for you and me because others will come up to us and they will say things like, well, explain to me how there is absolute morality and right and wrong. Oh, but you can't use the Bible. We don't count the Bible. Wait a minute. Who said we can't count the Bible? I did. Oh, you get to make the rules, huh? Explain to me the nature of the universe. But, well, we can't use God because I don't believe in God. You see, we don't have to play along with others' games. What Jesus is doing here is showing the reality of the universe and of life. And he will not be put into the box the Sadducees are getting for him. You see, the presupposition that the Sadducees have is that Life right now is all there is. And so, what they view eternal life as being, exactly like it is now, except for for a really long time. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. Would you really want eternal life if it came with an eternity of upset stomachs and head colds and bunions and hunger? And restless nights? I wouldn't. But you see, the Sadducees have set this up. They think eternal life is absurd because they've defined it in an absurd way. They think eternal life is just longer life than they have now. You see, they didn't even understand death itself. And so Jesus looks at them and he answers them in this fashion. Do you realize... Why there's lever at marriage? There's only lever at marriage because there's what? Death. A prerequisite for lever at marriage is death. So if we are talking about a world in which there is no more death, why would your scenario be applicable? Why would people live like that? You don't understand the need for marriage now. You don't understand why people get married and have children. Why the institution exists. It exists to propagate life. Marriage is about God's design in the world today 
for the continuation of life and society. That's what marriage is about. What the Sadducees don't understand is that true life is about an eternity with God, free from death, not needing a succession plan, not needing to find a plan for inheritance. And what Jesus does is he tells them the truth. It's a truth that you need to know. It's a truth that's applicable to all philosophical and theological conversations that you have. And that's first and foremost that there is a distinction, a difference between this world and the next. You see what Jesus says in verse 34? He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Right now, marriage is for now. But later it will be different. And this is true of all things. You see, there is a fundamental difference between life in a sinful world where death awaits us and inheritance of eternal life and glory with God. And so Jesus says, there is no marriage in heaven. Look at verse 35. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, I know for some of you, you've heard this before or maybe now for the first time and and you're a little bit disconcerted. You think, wait a minute. I'd like to have my spouse in heaven. How could heaven be good if I don't have my spouse? Don't step into the Sadducees' box. Because you see, it is not as if your life will be worse because you will not be married. It is that it will be better. Because you see, what makes marriage good and glorious? Isn't it the closeness that we have? Isn't it the love and self-sacrifice we have for one another? Isn't it the way we can finish each other's sentences? Now imagine that you didn't just have that kind of deep and abiding love and relationship with one person, but you had it with everyone. Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that be glorious to be before the throne of God, being fully known and fully knowing? You see, Jesus is explaining to them that the world to come is different than the world is now. There will no longer be any death. Look at verse 36. They cannot die anymore, so they have no need for procreation. There will be no more children in heaven. Because there will be no more death. It will be eternity. But what there will be is an exalted existence. Jesus says we will be equal or like the angels is what it means. Now what does that mean? No, it does not mean you will be issued a harp and tack on wings. It means that you will be like angels in power and glory. That you will not be able to sin. Not just that you will not sin, you will not be able to sin. That you will always worship the true and living God. And catch this. That your family will be the entirety of the family of God. Do you see that? You will be sons of of God, sons of the resurrection. 
You see, Jesus says they have missed the point completely about the resurrection. Then the second thing that Jesus reminds us is that they've not only missed the point about the resurrection, but they missed the point about God, about the nature of God. Because you see, they've built their idea of the resurrection and of life on an idea that God is distant. That He's off somewhere. You see, if there's no eternity, if God doesn't really speak to us, If there are no consequences to life, then we don't really need God, do we? He's just off somewhere, sort of smiling down upon us in a non-judgmental kind of way. You know, it could take an awful lot for me to get really angry theologically. But I'm going to warn you, if you ever play the song from a distance in my hearing, I will probably throw something. God is not off somewhere in the distance. He is imminent. He is involved in our lives. And you see, the Sadducees have missed that entirely because they're only concerned about the here and the now. They have no need for God at all. You see, God is actually only there to serve them, to meet their needs. Because when today is all that matters, who runs the show? I do. I get what I want. And I use every lever of power that I can to get what I want. To get my concept of happiness. To get my concept of love. To get my concept of fairness. And I don't care what y'all think. You see, the Sadducees are living a materialistic, self-centered life. And they don't understand God at all. Because God doesn't fit in a life like that. You see, they're actually acting as if they're doing God a favor by what they're doing. But in reality, they're acting as if He doesn't even exist. They don't understand the nature of God, and they don't understand the promises of God. You see, they think God has no lasting plan. Think about this for a moment. If there is no resurrection, then God doesn't think beyond the present moment, does He? If there's no consequences, then God has no eternal plan. He has no eternal promise. He's only thinking about the here and the now. And you see, Jesus does something very interesting. He challenges the Sadducees directly on their turf. Look at verse 37. Remember what I said to you about the Sadducees. How many books of the Bible do they look at? Five. And so he's talking to them about the resurrection and about God. And he could have turned to Daniel chapter 12, where it very clearly says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. He could have turned to Isaiah 26 and said, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. He could have turned to Psalm 16. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not leave me in Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He could have quoted Job and said, I know that my Redeemer lives and in my flesh I will see Him. But he knows that the Sadducees would just say, Oh, we don't believe in the Psalms. 
Oh, no, 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 Job's not a real person. Try again. And so what Jesus does is he turns to Exodus. This is instructive to us because the great truths of Scripture are found throughout the Bible. We don't need one magic Bible verse. They're all throughout the Bible. And he turns to a passage that at first glance seems to have absolutely nothing to do with the resurrection. He looks at them and he says, like, um, you know that story about the bush? Now, can you imagine the Sadducees? The bush. What's he going to do? Talk about burning? Taking our shoes off? What what are you talking about, Jesus? And he says, do you remember the story of Abraham, or excuse me, of Moses at the bush? That God spoke to him and he said, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And then he says something we should all well know. He says, this makes no sense if they're dead. Now think about that for a moment. What do you say when you speak to someone about their grandfather that has passed on? You say, I was your grandfather's friend. Your grandfather taught me in school. You don't say, I am your grandfather's friend. Why? Because he's deceased. So why would God not understand grammar? Why did God not say, I was the God of Abraham? I spoke long ago to him. He doesn't say that. You see, little words in the Bible mean something. And he says, I am the God of Abraham. And the only way that could be true is what? If Abraham's alive, it's the only way that can be true. You see, God's promises are real. What good would it be to Abraham? What good would it be to you to have the promise of God that he will never leave you nor forsake you if he takes you through a dental appointment, a car accident, and a bad job? And then at death said, sorry, see ya. No, he's promised never to leave you, nor forsake you. His covenant is eternal. His promise is eternal, he tells us. And the only way that can be eternal is if there's life after death. Abraham understood this. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? As Isaac was to be taken to the altar to be killed. And Abraham is having a very difficult time with this. Not the least of which is because God has promised him that he will redeem the world and bless all of the nations through his seed, Isaac. And Abraham saying to himself, well, how will this happen? If I kill Isaac, there's no more Isaac. And if there's no more Isaac, there's no more seed of Isaac. And Abraham comes to the conclusion that if I have a choice between God being a liar and God having to raise someone from the dead, he'll raise someone from the dead. Do you believe that? You see, when all around us is in flux, when everyone attacks God and his word, do you trust him and what he has said? Do you put your life on the line with him? Briefly, there's a third thing that we see here. Actually, Jesus brings it to light. We see that the Sadducees not only missed the point about the resurrection and missed the point about God, they also missed the point about Christ. That is, 
the title Christ, who is to be the Christ. And Jesus opens up with a question. You can just imagine this now. The Pharisees, as much as they would like to see Jesus go down, they're laughing on the inside because the Sadducees thought they would do so much better and they got nowhere. So they say, oh, you answered really good, Jesus. And that's their way of saying, we're not even going to try this one again. So Jesus says, well, how about if I ask you something? He says, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Because David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. Now, Jesus has defeated them all. And he's pushing the last point. Who exactly is the Christ? Christ is just the Greek version of the word Messiah. Who is the the Messiah, the Savior of the people? Everyone understood that the Christ would be the son of David. It's throughout all of the Old Testament. And so, for this reason, the Jewish leaders wanted a superman. They wanted David on steroids. They wanted him to be a superman who would come in and sweep away the Romans and set life up properly with them in charge. But you see, Jesus cites a passage here from Psalm 110 that creates a problem. He says, the Lord says to David's Lord. So we have a problem. Now, you may see this in your Bibles. If not, I'll help you. The two words there for Lord are not the same. Many of the translations have the first Lord as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that is a way of indicating that the background for that is the Hebrew name of God. The name I am that I am. Yahweh, Jehovah. It's the name of God. The second Lord is another word, Adonai. And it means master. And so Jesus says to them, how can David say, God, Yahweh, said to my master? Because what David's saying is, the Christ is his master. How can he be his son at the same time that he's his master? And you see, the problem is, they have categories set up that they need Jesus and the Christ to fit into. The Christ is supposed to serve them. He's supposed to advance their ways. No son could ever be greater than a father in their world. And so therefore, they've got to change the Bible to fix it. That's not that different from what we see today, is it? People are constantly trying to fit Christ into their categories. They're trying to make him tolerant where he's not. They're trying to make him teach what they want. They're trying to make him equal to others that he is not equal to. They don't understand who Jesus is. And they don't understand his mission. Because who does Christ serve? You see, back then and today, people will have Christ if he will serve them. If he will advance their needs. I mean, you've seen it all this weekend, haven't you? People declaring what Jesus would believe about marriage. Of course, they don't read what he actually said. But they're just declaring it. We put Jesus in our image. But Jesus tells us what his true mission is. Look at verse 42. 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The truth is, is that Jesus is David's son and he is God. He is both. And that is because he has come to bridge the chasm between God and sinful man. And he will defeat all his enemies, sin, the flesh, and the last enemy, death. That is the mission of Jesus. So this week, as you wonder about what's true and what's not, and as people declare to you what they are so certain about the way the world is, think about what it means to miss the point. And think about the consequences for missing the point. Turn now to the Lord Jesus Christ. For He alone is true. He alone is powerful. He alone brings eternal life. Let's pray.